America. My name is Armio Sefrempong. I come to you live every Thursday about this time to talk to you about the news of the day and help you kind of make sense of your life, lest you squander it doing things you ought not do. And today I'm going to talk about Occupy Wall Street. I was, um, you know, it happened about 10 years ago. I remember I was there in Chicago. This is a picture of me. I have, I have receipts. The banking lobby can have the back of my invisible hand. That's, I guess, a little bit of mid-level humor taken from uh, Adam Smith's often quoted section on the wealth of nations that the economy is best run, the market economy is best run when the people don't plan it. Right? It must stay invisible. Right. So um, it turns out that that economy is not really how we run economies now, especially post-New uh, Deal era and post-80s. We've pretty much re-regulated the economy, and the United States economy is regulated almost within, especially around food, within an inch of its life. And it needs to be less we wouldn't have the food getting to where it needs to go. It's good that milk prices are regulated and, and farmers get subsidies. And, and, but, you know, in general, um, we regulate our economy. It's still a market economy. It's just a, you know, a kind of generally planned market economy. And that is perfectly appropriate. Uh, so everyone gets, you know, the goods and services they need at a reasonable price. Well, that's the goal of it. Whether it happens... I don't know. So what happened with Occupy Wall Street? A few things. One, it never put forth a positive notion of governance, a positive vision of governance, just like an alternative. We don't like the bankers in the 1%. First of all, the problem isn't the 1%. It's not the 99 versus 1%. That's silly. Uh, the top third is the problem. <laughs> the top third is the problem. And, th th that, and it goes all the way down to people who aspire to be in the top third because they're pretty much comfortable treating the bottom third like crap. So it's anyone who aspires to be in the top third. And the top third is like a big chunk of people. So you can aspire to be in the top third and still be a problem for justice, right? So the problem isn't the 1%. They're the winners, but the problem is the top third and people who aspire to be in the top third. Not too many of those people are black. But the black people who are in the top third make a whole job out of managing the rest of us. So um, this idea that the problem is just the ultra billionaires or just Bezos, just Bezos and Elon Musk, that's, that's silly. It would, that was never the problem. The problem is like, you know, white teachers married to white cops who inherit, right? Just enough to put them in the top third of America. And like, they're already going to be a problem for you. And especially for black people, they're going to be a problem for us. So that was already a problem. It wasn't just the 1%. It's okay that people make a lot of money. The problem is that money allows them power over our institutions of freedom, right? So it turns out that Jeff Bezos is suing NASA um, for a moon landing, a moon landing contract, and that's like slowing down the uh, NASA project. So Jeff Bezos is like uh, space cowboy aspirations. How are screwing up like the like our ability to like land on the moon and like build build a life on the moon so like that's a problem with billionaires it's not so much that they have so much money it's that what the things they do to keep the money um like end up screwing up with other people's freedom they end up distorting our our ability to live well so understand that second um 
it lacked a coherent ideology that had to be mutually exclusive with the status quo, right? So you needed a coherent ideology that's like mutually, um, you know, mutually reinforcing institutions of freedom, like where you where you work out and you publicize how to like govern through mutually reinforcing institutions of freedom, um, in a way that's mutually exclusive with how we're currently governing, governing, and that is actually better. You have to promulgate the vision. You need an ideology, and it needs to be kind of needs to be able to sustain reason, right? So it was always a media campaign um, that didn't realize that it always should have been a media campaign. You have to negate how every, people's everyday reality because if they think their everyday reality is fine and the, it's as good as it could be, then they're not going to jeopardize that everyday reality for a better reality. You have to negate it, aggressively negate it. Um, so that it's uh, awful in ways that are predictable and exploitative, and then put forth a vision of governance and the role in people and the role of government in people's lives that wouldn't be as um, exploitative and actually is constitutive of freedom, right? So you have to do all of that, and in all ways, like you have to have a program of property, you have to have a program about family, you have to have a program about civil society that includes jobs. You have to have a political program. Look, Americans right now are anti-political. When I say anti-political, it means they want a civil government. They want public order. Um, they don't care who it's run by as long as it secures like their non-political rights. They happen to vote sometimes, but for the most part, they don't actually believe in public governance. And that is a problem. And that is a problem. It's anti-political um, because in a lot of ways we've given up on politics because democracy actually costs. Democracy costs, excuse me, democracy costs a lot of money and it costs a lot of time and it costs a lot of resources um, to actually be a self-governing society. And so, and there is no ROI on democracy except democracy, right? So people want an authoritarian public order that will secure their rights. Um, well, the people who actually, uh, you know, have like a comfortable but slightly meaningless lifestyle. They, they just want a public authoritarian order that will secure their extant rights as they understand them. Right? They don't want self-government because self-government takes work. Self-government is also like a huge source of meaning. And, they don't, and these people I'm talking about, they don't know why they're slightly bored with their meaningless life um, or anxious about it. But you need to make the argument that self-government matters and be honest about the conditions of self-government. Because just voting for whatever Democrat is on your ballot isn't the same as self-government. That's not actually being able to run for office legitimately. I should be able to be a congressperson. If you like, if you support the Army Congress Congressional Fund, go ahead and go to www.funkyacademic.com and kick in $5.15 to $50 a month, and I'll just kind of keep doing what I'm doing. But, um, uh, you know, everybody should be able to run for public office and not have that jeopardize their other freedoms. And unless you understand that, then you're not actually serious about political freedom or, or political self-determination through public institutions, right? Democracy costs money, and we don't, and we expect a return on investment in democracy that's not just democracy, and that's the problem, because all you get with democracy is democracy, but you'll actually get a say in your public life, but that's all you'll get, like, there's not going to be any ancillary private benefit other than a say in your public life. So the problem is they're going to be 
these programs that uh, these campaigns that don't actually promote democracy, but will promote goodies instead. And then they're going to be outflanked by another authoritarian regime that gives you the same goodies, right? So authoritarian regime will give you health care. And then you'll tell yourself that like, well, why should I give up healthcare for democracy? Right? Because it didn't fold in political self-determination as a basic need. Right? So you need an actually like robust politics that deals with uh, political freedom, civil freedom in civil society, what it means to actually have a government that upholds family freedom. And you know, the Constitution says that it's supposed to secure the base, uh, the blessings of liberty and all and that means the blessing of, of liberty in all of its forms. So like we need a, we need to actually think about what it would be to have a, um, a political culture that actually supported the blessings of liberty in all of its forms and work towards that. But you need to work, you need to actually articulate them. You need to actually articulate them. And Occupy Wall Street didn't do that. Told you it was, a, it was against like not taxing the multi-multi-multi-millionaires, but it didn't tell you what it was for in a way that actually negated like your everyday reality. It became optional. Um, and that, that's a problem and that is the problem, right? So what else did Occupy Wall Street? Didn't put forth a vision of why the everyday life is, is untenable in a way that is morally degrading and ethically degrading and put forth a positive vision of what we could do better. And then of course there are like strategy things. It didn't know, it didn't understand that electoral politics is a site of politics. Like yelling in the park is one thing, but you need to start taking over school boards and like the the institutions of electoral democracy and cultural control. So the the media arm wasn't that great and the educational arm wasn't that great. But in general, I think it's just because it wasn't a deep enough movement. It was an outrage movement that didn't actually get to um articulating the conditions for democracy. I'm in my office, kids, um, that didn't actually get to articulating the conditions for uh, democracy. My kids just came home, so. Uh, and in order to do that, you needed a policy on all of these different institutions of freedom. You needed a jobs policy, you needed a union policy, you needed, uh, you needed a media policy, because that's one thing that we fail the most. That's why I do this and not other things, because I think you can't run a democracy in a way that supports self-determination through our institutions without media, without people getting the ideas of out that kind of articulate what we need to do in order to govern ourselves um, uh, lest the market govern us and, 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 and not ourselves govern us. So like what so it didn't have a media, it, it, it didn't have a companion media book. Look, in a well-ordered world, you give me a zillion dollars, I'll have children's books coming out with my ideas about like how to organize, um, you know, self-determination in, in all of these different uh, spheres of activity. And I'll like, you know, there'll be a curriculum and well-produced videos and all, like, this is a media operation. You have to change the culture. You have to change the water. You need to go after, this is why I'm a big fan of the critical race theory debate, which is pretty much why I, you know, yeah, like I, I, I think it's good. It's good to actually force Democrats to actually talk about critical race theory and like what goes into our schools because our schools produce kind of bourgeois white supremacists because the default is always kind of bourgeois white supremacists because let's be honest. And I might do a whole, um, 
video on this in a few weeks. Either you work through what I'm kind of spitting out in terms of institutions of self-determination, or all of your institutional participation is going to be determined by like white male sexual anxiety. <laughs> right? That's that's like there are only two ways to go in America. Either you're free or you are always conforming your actions to making to like the dictates of white male sexual anxiety. Um, which is, you know, you got to make them feel some sort of way and, and you, you got to, you know, watch out for their wives who they sick on you. And like, you just got to always, um, you know, I was trying to explain this to my friends and I was like, it's kind of like, you know, Superman isn't the most powerful person in, in, in the Superman universe. It's Lois Lane has a lot of power too, because Superman would do anything for Lois Lane. So like the whole world is kind of, invested in um superman like in lois lane getting together and staying together because what happens when lois lane divorces superman that's a problem for like everybody because what happens you don't want moody superman not just if you're lois lane you don't like i don't want to live next in a world with moody superman because he just might go nuclear on everyone because he's in a mood right so i don't like, like moody superman is is bad for everyone so we all have a vested interest in uh keeping lois lane with superman and if I, Lois Lane looks at me and, and, and develops a crush on the funky academic. I have to tell Lois Lane to avert her eyes and go back to Superman because if Superman finds out that Lois Lane has a crush on me, I don't need sexually anxious Superman to take that out on me because he could obliterate me very soon. So this is black life. Um, uh, this is black life trying to, to not raise the vaguely homoerotic but definitely violent ire of of like white male sexual anxiety and because that's like what governs our institutions or we could go with my way and we actually get our institutions through institutions of freedom but i i i don't want to i don't want to raise my kids or to live in a life where you always have to worry about not making white people anxious and um and i think that 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 there's only like you either get serious about government and socialist policies or you, and I'm talking about self-governance, not just the goodies. Cause when people talk about socialist policies, they often just talk about like the goodies, like healthcare or whatever. But like, I'm talking about like self-governments and like the ability to stand on your own feet without having to worry about someone's capricious anxiety, like getting you out of a job. Like I want black people to be able to talk like I do and retain their jobs and not just me, but retain their everyday. I want them to talk like this on the job. Who gets to talk like this in the comments? Who gets to talk like I talk on the job and still retain their job? That's what freedom would look like. That's what freedom would look like. Um, so I don't, I don't, uh, I, so I want black people to be free and not have to like not be threatening. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm a little, I'm a little bit aged out of having to like not be threatening because I have kids and stuff and I'm old. But I, there's no black person in these United States who should ever have to um, uh, make themselves small, smaller than they are because they're scared of scaring someone else. Um, and that's and that's when we'll be free, and so we need to kind of organize the kind of security that that will enable that freedom, and not just tailor our public world to um, 
to, you know, white male sexual anxiety. And those who benefit and can manipulate white male sexual anxiety, which is no small number of women or aspire women who aspire to that to that role. So Occupy Wall Street could have put forth a vision of kind of the institutions of governance in a way that actually secured people's self-determination and not just said like billionaires are bad and um, we should tax them. Right. So we, like it just needed a more robust politics and more catchy politics um, because it's not just the one percent. If it were just the one percent, like <laughs> there wouldn't be a problem. It's the top third. It's the top third. And we need to go after the top third. Uh, so and that includes like the professor. Someone said professors are silent on the issue. Yeah, because the professors like like people like status quo. People like the status quo. Not, I mean, and black people don't think there's anything they can do about it, right? So you could say that, like, well, you know, it didn't fold in enough black people. It didn't fold in enough people of color. And like, well, you know, <clears throat> that's not necessarily where the revolution's going to lead, like, working class black people, because they're all too busy, like, working and struggling to actually lead a revolution, too, that nobody's going to talk to. So it's actually the mid-level class. Especially, like, if you're black and have any sort of education, it's your responsibility to do it. Not so much, you know, the black, like, lower class and the black working class. They're busy hustling. And so, like, this is why I do what I do. And, um, and honestly, you should support me doing what I'm doing. And, and support other people to actually kind of clarify the conditions for freedom and make the hard arguments because um you know these these left and progressive movements that are just depending on like the black working class to like organize themselves under the microscope in like situations of mass precarity are just ridiculous right so i need you know kind of the people who pay attention to what i do to to understand that it's our job to lead and clarify the issue and clarify the issue that we need that we need to kind of you know restructure the united states so that all of the blessings of liberty um are exercised by everyone right um and that's not too much to ask i mean it's in the constitution and that would just that would take a few things, and we'd have to read, look at our labor policy to make sure everyone secured a good job. You know, I'm thinking there's a way in which public school teaching is just like a federal jobs guarantee for white women, because like you don't need much, and they'll just let you. Because they'll, you know, we make life pretty easy for them, so they'll fly through the background check, and like you need kind of a school uh, a degree. And then all of a sudden, you're a public school teacher. So they already have a federal job guarantee. So they're going to be crap on labor politics because they have a federal job guarantee. They always just teach school. But everybody else needs an access to a good job, too. It's like a matter of right because you're not really going to be free until um, you have secure access to a good job or uh, a secure income. You're not really free. Right, so we need everyone to have access to a good job, and not just not just welfare dole. I, you need to be able to a guaranteed place to participate in the system. So you need a good job, twenty five dollars an hour, guaranteed thirty five hours a week, within your zip code or whatever, um, doing the work that needs to go. And 
Um, and that's just as a matter of citizenship. You can't be politically free if you're socially like degraded, right? So you need to like be a functional person of like in civil society, which means you need to have secure access to a good job, at least $25 an hour and you know, at least 35 hours a week more if you want. And, and that will actually like allow a quality of political participation because then you can mouth off and talk, <laughs> excuse me, like I do at work and still like not worried about not getting a job. I'm mean, not, not worried about losing a job, right? So, um, so that was, that should have been one thing, a federal job guarantee. Two, yeah, you know, there's like political, the political ask, like Nancy Pelosi shouldn't be able to run for office for 30 years and not have to sit for a debate. Like that's ridiculous. So it's a puppet government and we're not exactly admitting that to public government. That's not a problem of Citizens United. That's a problem with understanding that like citizens need to be able to actually exercise power against their representatives and force them to debate. Like there should be mandatory debates for congressional, congressional actors. Um, like it should be able to be triggered by a petition that, uh, you know, 200 people sign and the congressperson has to sign up, has to show up and a maximum three times an election cycle. But like they should be compelled to, to show up. They, we should be able to subpoena our Congress people to a debate. That's, that's about democracy, right? So Occupy Wall Street um, was rage grievance politics that never actually transformed to like, how do we highlight the fundamental inadequacies and degradations of the current order and in a way that um, puts forth a vision for a different political order. Yeah, U.S. politicians are the biggest welfare recipients. I, I think so, too. I, I mean, it's, if you're an incumbent congressperson, it's, it's pretty much a job guarantee because you have a structural monopoly over the party apparatus that kept you in Congress, right? So, um, yeah. So I, 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 I think we need to be serious about the political, I think we need to be serious about the political conditions um, for self-determination and more than just, um, more than just, you know, tax the billionaires. I mean, we could do that too, because insofar as they use their money to kind of like degrade our freedom, we need to actually take some of their money back. Um, but we need to actually be honest about the conditions that we need for family, civil society, and political freedom and education that would actually um, support, you know, a more robust nation. And the inability to articulate that, like, leaves it up to these market mechanisms that will produce the kind of politics that we now kind of suffer under. Right? And it's not going to change. And it's not going to change unless we actually talk about like mandating debates, subpoena debates. Hey, you want to come say hi to the people? Are you sure? Okay. You made plastic today? Well, we'll talk about that. All right. Uh, I'm going to go hang out with my kids because I love them. And um, yeah, like it was a messaging problem because we didn't have a, the, the quality of deep thought at the bottom. Um, and that should have been promulgated. That should have been promulgated. Right. So I, like I said, I'm going to go talk to my kids and I will talk to you next week. 
I wanted to do a sports show. I might pop one of those out this weekend. Because, uh, you know, we race a lot of sports in these weird ways. And um, it's, it, I think it's kind of interesting. But once again, I think it's tied to white male sexual anxiety. And that goes into what we, how we race a lot of sports. Hey, think on this for a little bit. Um, there are the kinds of sports where you uh, thank the coach. They're the kind of sports where you thank the coach and praise the coach. And then there are the kind of sports where you praise the people. And in the kind of sports where you praise the coach and the administration, it's okay if the players are black. Like, like uh, I'm thinking about UGA football. But you, because uh, like when UGA football wins, you think you think the football administration, maybe the quarterback and like the coach, you don't think like the, the what you call it, the defense, which is all black. And um, and most in the offense, except for like one tight end and, and an offensive lineman, he's like second string, are all black, except all of the QBs for the first four strings um, of quarterbacks are, are white. So that's a weird slotting, a racialized slotting. And also I was just thinking about in terms of what else is kind of determined by white male anxiety. Why don't white guys dance? I was talking to my friend about this. She was like, she was having a hard time finding a dance partner because she likes to take dance classes, but she's married to a white guy who doesn't dance. And, you know, it's, and I, I actually think it is a, uh, they don't want to surrender themselves to the beat. It's kind of a, a, a cultural tick because, you know, other guys dance, black guys dance, Latin guys dance, white guys don't dance. It's, I think it's a, it's an institution of colonialism. Like hip movement is for women and the gays, right? That's why the white guys don't do ballet. All right. Thank you for your time. And uh, I will talk to you later.